At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Psst. Hey, it's me, your barista. So you know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Yeah, well, I might be putting myself out of a job by telling you this, but now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. With three new foaming flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato, who could blame you if you stopped coming in altogether? Yeah, it's that foaming delicious. You're welcome. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, now in stores. It's foaming delicious. Tuesday night edition, we're going to get back to our agent evaluation series here with uh, one of the more famous agents, uh, Bill Duffy of uh, BDA Sports. He's also got uh, Nima Namakian and Marlon Harrison working under him. And uh, Duffy has uh, always had some of the biggest clients with Steve Nash's agent uh, of note uh, for a long time, uh, many others. And just to avoid any sort of bias we're just going to go in alphabetical order here and we can start with number one overall pick in 2018 deandre ayton uh who uh is a rep by uh nima namakian specifically uh, at bda sports drafted first overall just on a, on a rookie scale contract right now and i think what we'll have to do eventually when we really compare these agents to each other is do it on some sort of tell me what you think of this thing we haven't talked about this yet do it on some sort of a sliding scale where the rookie ones those grades probably shouldn't matter as much because it's basically yeah, a, wa- just a where, weighted yeah. system yeah it's basically just where you're selected so yeah i mean if you're if you're getting your guy drafted four picks higher than he was supposed to go and you do that consistently but then all of your unrestricted free agents are getting terrible contracts or turning down extensions or stuff i think you're doing a lot more damage a lot more of where you're making that money with the agent is on the second contract so uh, just doing a total weighted average uh, or just a straight average doesn't make as much sense as maybe a, a weighted average of some sort. We'll try to think of what the fairest way to do that is. But for going first overall 2018, DeAndre Aiden, I just gave that a C plus. Again, we'll be very clear as well that a C is average. A C is not an insult. That's uh, you got what was blocked for you if it, you got a C. So that's not saying you're doing a bad job. This isn't business school where a, the worst students are getting C's. This is uh, we're going for a normal distribution across all contracts and and i would even say probably i I would guess our average gpa is probably going to be you know in the c plus range because i do think that there are not that many agents that you can just say are straight up doing a bad job necessarily yeah there won't be agents for very long and and with it i might go a little bit higher just because i didn't think he was the best player in the draft but yeah. remember, there were extenuating circumstances with the ownership connection with the University of Arizona and everything else. Like if a different team had gotten the number one pick, then Aiton very well might not have gone number one. And so just like we don't give general managers credit when they win the lottery and get the number one pick, giving an agent credit when they quote unquote win the lottery and the perfect, the like the team that's going to draft them number one gets the number one pick. Yeah, that's, uh, that's fair. I, I think he's... He didn't deserve to go number one, and he did go number one, so I I think that that was pretty decent. Uh, RJ Barrett, number three overall pick in 2019, went for a C-plus there as well. I mean, that was... 
about what he was supposed to get, but I also thought he was kind of a, a and there's always, he was going to go third. That was usually the, the thought, ended up going third. But I also thought that RJ was kind of a flawed prospect. So at least they managed to present him in such a way that they didn't cause him to drop. So I, I give that a C plus. Well, and it sounded like RJ wanted to go to the Knicks. So then he also did right by his client there. Great point. Avery Bradley was previously with CAA. I couldn't determine exactly when he switched over, but uh, he did sign this latest deal with the Lakers, which is a two-year, $9.7 million deal with a player option. That player option is pretty good. The room exception, you remember that Bradley previously uh, had signed a two-year, $25 million deal to return to the Clippers after that trade from Detroit. I thought that was a pretty good deal. Agreed. For Bradley in well, the and summer remember of 2018. That Bradley had such a strange 2018-19 where he was awful, awful, awful on the Clippers, then got traded to Memphis in part because of the structure of his contract, and then played pretty well for Memphis before getting before they didn't want to pay that partial guarantee for the next year, and then he ended up signing with the Lakers. But the player option to me is the, is the big thing there because that gave him an out in case the 1920 season didn't go well. Yeah, so I thought uh, both of his last couple of deals uh, were pretty good. I mean, I don't think that Bradley had much more out there for him than that uh, that we knew of above the room exception and to get the player option. So that's a solid B for me. And I, I would say the same for his previous deal, even though I'm not sure that he was with BDA at that point, but to get uh, $14 million guaranteed was uh, pretty solid in that pretty rough summer uh, of 2018. Matthew Dellavedova is one where I thought they did a really, really good job for him. It was a four-year, $38 million deal with the Bucks that leaving Cleveland but important to remember what happened before that which was he after his third year in the I'm sorry his second year in the league Del Vadova played a, a pretty decent role in the absence of Kyrie Irving in the 2015 finals uh, had a star turn in that game three ended up not having much of a market so they just went for a one-year qualifying offer even knowing that they'd have to go back into restricted free agency again. And they did that knowing that the summer of 2016 was coming. And you would imagine there was some sort of a long-term deal that the Cavs were providing that at low money. And so to not take that and then get into that summer of 2016, get the restricted free agent offer sheet, which obviously Cleveland wasn't going to match. And that became, of course, a, a pretty bad contract. Didn't seem that awful at the time, given his youth, but uh, he underperformed on that deal. And uh, to get Matthew Delvadova paid $38 million so was excellent. So uh, I would go with uh, a minus a- for that one. And years over dollars here. I mean, not only getting Del Vadova a solid payday, but getting the four years out of it because he didn't live up to that over the length of the contract, but he was still locked in. And, and you know, it's to a certain respect, if you can get a player on a favorable enough contract that they end up needing to get salary dumped, incidentally, to the team that technically signed him to that deal in the first place because it was a sign and trade. Well done from the agent perspective. Check Diallo signed a two minus one with a team option with the Phoenix Suns uh, after three years in New Orleans. Hadn't done a ton. So I, I thought they actually did a pretty decent job getting him at least a one guaranteed year. Diallo also hasn't done much uh, with the Suns. So uh, I would give that a, a solid C plus to get him that deal without much of a resume. Right. I, I've some might think, oh man, you had to get, take a, a, a team option in the second year. That's not favorable to the player. But it might have been that the team option was necessary to get the fully guaranteed 1920, and that was an important step. And I thought that, and and the Suns, you know, it looked like they might have some sort of opportunity on the on on the big men slots, and they ended up having that due to injury and suspension. And Diallo didn't impress me too much. So good job getting him a fully guaranteed season and a roster spot. 
Yeah, Diallo also was the 33rd overall pick in 2016. And getting him drafted 33rd when he was coming off basically like 10 minutes a game in college uh, was pretty good. So I'll, I'll actually bump that up to uh, to a B- minus there. Um, and I didn't have readily at hand how much of that was guaranteed back in 2016. But I think I, my recollection was it, it wasn't particularly something that stood out in either direction. That's Most people who got drafted as second rounders, I mean, uh, who's that center from purdue that the mavericks drafted and then they dumped him on the on the heat. aj hammonds aj hammond yeah he got like three guaranteed years when he got drafted in the 40s yeah luka Doncic. this one was interesting because this is bill duffy not uh nima namakian but those guys were competing with one another uh him and ayton to go number one in the 2018 draft luka was clearly the best player he had the best resume now do you want to say that it was a failure for him to go third to Dallas or do you want to say it was a success because he avoided Phoenix and Sacramento and then they got the trade to Dallas which you would imagine that his agent was at least somewhat involved in making that happen there's the idea too of like whether the Hawks wanted him and clearly going to Dallas was much preferable to Atlanta Phoenix or Sacramento so despite the fact that he went lower than he should have I think I would give that a, a solid uh B minus organization is so important because the rookie scale even though it does tone down you know the top is stronger is than than the lower picks it's still artificially limited and everything else like that so where you are not only the personnel surrounding personnel but the coach i think carlisle's done well by luca owner o- overall management i think the mavericks have you know not done a perfect job but they've done a very good job overall i mean we talked about a few of their players on the best contracts list for for a good reason and they're well suited for the future we've talked about the 2020 one option for them. So yeah, I think it worked out well. My big signpost with Luca is going to be we've seen over the last few years that one of the ways that player agency has reared its head is star players choosing shorter contracts because it gives them more control. LeBron famously did this in Cleveland. Durant did it a lot with the Warriors, but we haven't seen players really do that off of rookie scale contracts. And I, yeah. I don't they, think well, they Lucas, can't get it. I mean, the, the 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 team is just straight up not going to offer it to them in restriction. Yeah, but it, like, would are there players who would be better off getting a three plus one through an offer sheet than getting the little bit more in max raises to get like a four plus one? I wonder. Oh, I think you you're right. You, you might be, but since whatever contract is clearly going to get matched, that offer may not be out there for you. Um, yeah, I mean, to me, the big question will be, is it a five-year deal or a four plus one when it comes up? That's, I mean, he's going to have more leverage maybe than just about anyone coming off their rookie contract has had in a long time. Mo Harkless was drafted 15th overall. He was uh, in purgatory with the Magic for a long time, then gets dumped from Orlando to Portland. Top 55 protected pick. Oh, yes. Yeah, boy, the Magic sure got their share of those. And blossomed in the 15-16 season, restricted free agency, four years, 40 million. He also had that hilarious incentive for shooting 35% on three-pointers that led him to like not take any three-pointers in the 16-17 season at the end once he got to 35%. Um, that, that's, uh, I guess you deserve credit there as the player agent for negotiating something that you would uh, allow your player to get it and make more money, even if maybe he you know had to manipulate things a little bit to do that. 
And getting a significant offer sheet in restricted free agency, yes, it was the summer of 2017, but to still get something solid there, I mean, he was a starting level of player at that time. So I thought that was like a C, maybe call it a B minus. And when you get paid in restricted free agency, that's important. He got the life-changing money, ended up getting traded twice from the Clippers and then to, to the Knicks here at the end. Also interesting, did not do a buyout in new york he's from new york i don't know if he was hoping to re-sign there with bird rights if that was part of the deal that part of the story is a little bit unwritten and and i can't really say yay or nay on that decision and not buy out and a lot of that's based on what the client wants there too so that's not really part of this to me but i I thought that was interesting to note I will note that Harkless actually got traded three times during the league year because he was originally traded to Miami in the Hassan Whiteside deal. Yeah, didn't that end up technically being a four-way? Oh, trade I guess you you him? might be you might be. Uh, yeah, I think I think they folded it in. Technically right. correct is the best kind of best correct, kind of that, that is the motto for this podcast. But yeah, I think your your overall grade is is totally fine. And Harkless, it's always it's always tough to get a long term get a significant deal and. Remember that Harkless, we, we both liked him a lot, but he wasn't somebody who had a ton of suitors, you know, not a high volume offensive player and a useful defensive player, but not a like a, a stud or, you know, like a an all defensive type of guy. So to get that kind of money, I think was was good negotiating. Yeah, and uh, they're going to have their work cut out for them here. Oh, boy. Go- I'm, ri- I'm writing forward, about this for The Athletic. Uh, as far as getting him paid this summer. Jackson Hayes, eighth overall. I think that's higher where, than where a lot of people thought he was going to go. Higher than you and I had him. Yes, yes. Uh, New Orleans traded down uh, thinking that they uh, could get him, send him to what's looking like a pretty good organization. So I think that's a solid B for me to get him him eighth overall there. Uh, That was another one where didn't have the greatest resume, didn't have the pedigree as far as like the high level AAU, McDonald's All-American type of background. And so, yeah, he looked good at, at Texas, but they did a nice job uh, of selling him even as a pretty raw prospect, even given the fact that he wasn't ready to contribute at all his rookie year. And now we get to Stanley Johnson, who I think is a good example of it doesn't have to be a big contract to be a good negotiation job. Yeah, getting the player option here, this is a, another uh, Nemo Namakian. Getting the player option here was, uh, and by the way, if anyone sees any errors with this, like uh, this is opaque data in a, a lot of senses, and especially knowing who exactly is involved within agencies can be difficult. So if it turns out that we're wrong uh, on this, please let us know. We will correct it. Uh, but yeah, to get a two-year deal at the BAE second-year player option, that in particular, I thought uh, was doing pretty well. Yeah, and I mean, Stanley Johnson wasn't near my favorite of the free agents that the yeah. Raptors signed in the 2019 offseason. He, he wasn't getting tick in New Orleans last year. Right. And they're totally rebuilding, and they could have brought him back if they wanted to. Yeah, and then like, and Rondé Hollis-Jefferson was ahead of ahead of Stanley Johnson most of the time in the rotation, even after, even though he had the more significant contract. And yeah, I mean, I thought that, I thought that's a pretty good job by Namaki and, and Duffy. Yeah, and and going uh eighth overall in 2015 again, that's totally fine. That's like a a, a C plus and uh, I would give uh, a solid B to that contract uh, with I'd go higher. Yeah. B plus yeah. A minus. I mean, he got yeah, more money right, than right. we anticipated and got a player option. So if it had actually gone well, which it didn't, then he would have been able to get out. Zach Levine, uh, another Neiman Namakian 
he was drafted 13th overall by the wolves was it 13th yes 13th overall to the wolves in 2014 and then was traded to chicago with the torn acl coming off the torn acl he had a really rough year but then it was not making much progress in terms of negotiations with the bulls got the king's four years 78 million dollar offer sheet the bulls swallowed hard and decided to max match that so, Do you yeah. remember where we were for all that? I don't know if you and I were together, but I know we were in the same place. That was in Vegas during Summer League, and I was just running around yelling. <laughs> so I, I feel strongly that that they did a good job for Zach Levine here, even though Levine has definitely been better since this contract was signed and matched. Yeah, I mean, that's a straight A to get $78 million guaranteed coming off a torn ACL when you look terrible. And especially for a team that uh, didn't exactly have a dearth of shooting guards and still uh, gave him that offer sheet, that that's one where uh, you pick the right team to try and deal with. So yeah, I, I think that's a straight A and pretty solid job even getting drafted 13th as well. That's a B given uh, his uh, limited pedigree again uh, at UCLA. Jalen McDaniels was the 50 second overall pick ended up on a hinky special the one year guaranteed money then four years after that with the last year being a potential team option the robert covington tj mcconnell type of contract those are two guys who actually made it all the way to the end of that and he had initially been signed to a summer contract then what they did was converted mcdaniels into a two-way and then were able to sign him to that four-year deal which had four hundred and fifty thousand guaranteed so at the 57 52nd overall pick that's not bad uh, i think it, working with the team it, it's unclear even if maybe if he gets drafted if he doesn't uh, and have an arrangement with the team uh, ahead of time so I, I think that was a pretty good job he, he may uh, end up outperforming that contract but he had no real pedigree coming in other than just his physical tools so i i, I think that was uh b minus work there I like hinky specials less than you from a player's perspective, just because yeah. they give teams well, if so is, much control. If we're talking about the 42nd overall pick or the 32nd overall pick, then yes, it seems to me like he got him money. And also that 450 guaranteed, probably what the thought was is that he was, he was going to get converted into the two-way. That 450 guaranteed is about, yeah, actually, maybe this isn't true because that 450 guaranteed that's about what he would have just gotten on a two-way anyway because usually they bring you up the maximum amount that they can to give you that around 400,000 or so on the two-way and so now he's under team control for longer but you also don't want to go into restricted free agency off a two-way either I mean that's a really bad place to be yeah because then they only have to tender you at the two-way yeah and he his uh he gets a hundred thousand guaranteed for next year after August 1st and then has the league-wide cut down date this this is one of those ones where again it's very opaque it's hard to know what else he had out there it's very easy to say now oh yeah he's actually looked kind of good but he also had absolutely no leverage at that time so just to get a guy an nba contract pretty good chance of actually using up a real roster spot instead of a two-way on a team like charlotte where you know he's gonna play i i i mean i'll, I'll put it at a, a c plus i think that's is, is that uh assuage your concerns a little bit sure uh kelly Oubre actually just signed with terrell harris in March of 2020, but it was uh, Neiman Namakian who negotiated his contract as a restricted free agent with Phoenix. I actually thought they did reasonably well for him. Kelly Oubre I agree. apparently did not agree. <laughs> well, and uh, there's, it's. I'm guessing there was a big tactical discussion about whether he would have wanted a longer term deal, potentially at a lower annual value. And I think going for a two year contract 
it, I think it's going to work out incredibly well for Ubre because he's going to be an unrestricted free agent at a young age, and he might be coming off it after being a starter for the Phoenix Suns. Yeah, he also has that meniscus surgery, which we'll have to watch his recovery from that. That's but, true. But to me, to get a significant amount of money, life-changing money, but also retain the upside to get a much larger contract a couple of years from now, to be, it's rare that you'll have a starter coming in to be an unrestricted free agent at, you know, I think it'll be 24, maybe 25 at that time. Like that's, that's pretty good. And to also just get lifetime security for your family and yourself. I thought he did pretty well there, given that he clearly didn't have an offer sheet elsewhere. There were also a, a lot of uh, moving pieces there with Ubre's cap hold, which they had made some moves to keep on the books. And so I think rather than locking into, you know, something along the lines of like 12 million a year for four years to get the two years 30 and then get back out there, that was, I, I thought that was a, a solid job. I think I, I would, get, and again, anytime you can get a guy paid reasonably well and restricted free agency when he doesn't have the offer sheet, I think you've done pretty, a pretty decent job. So I, I would give that a B, even though uh, Kelly Oubre didn't seem to agree. Well, and, and- and the other thing that's notable about it is they bet on Ubre's talent more than I was comfortable with. You know, I wasn't the biggest fan of Kelly Ubre. You know, still thought that the Suns did well to get him for Trevor Reese and everything like that. But he really outperformed my expectations and that's huge you know the, to, to be able to do that to be able to bet on yourself and win is is impressive and so what it was probably risky and i'm sure there there may be people within the uber camp who didn't like that but i think it, i think it worked out really well okay we'll do another quick break here and then get to the rest of the stable so josh richardson 40th overall pick went to miami in the 2015 draft three-year deal basically at the minimum Miami had some tax concerns around that time it got a basically a year of that guaranteed which wasn't amazing but more money guaranteed over future years seems to be more of the norm these days but Richardson outperformed that he signed what we now call the Josh Richardson which is for the second round undrafted guys the maximum extension that they can sign which starts at 120 percent of the estimated average player salary and then gets the the maximum raises so that was the most he could sign for he did it after two years it was four years 42 million but also had a player option on the end of it so he, which he is got, gargantuan yes yeah that's huge because especially in this going into the summer of 2021 uh that's gonna be massive i mean and for perspective if josh richardson contract went one more year we it would have been in the discussion maybe even the winner for the best contract in the NBA among non-rookie scale and Most, non-matches. And, and that's from a team perspective, most favorable right. for the team. So Yeah, exactly. So you don't, you, as an agent, you generally, you generally don't want to be on that type of a list. Um, now, some have extenuating circumstances like Robert Covington. He got that big balloon payment before. Uh, his uh, extension actually kicked in. So it's more, his contract is currently more team friendly than the actual amount of money that he has received. And in other situations, the player wasn't that good at the time. He didn't have the leverage. He wanted to get some security. All of that, again, you get the life-changing money to only go for three years though and get that player option. I think that that was massive. And yes, he looked like he was going to be underpaid probably from the moment he signed that. But he still got, you know, slightly below average starter money. I think he's a better player than that, clearly. But you just have to remember that these guys coming off of these second round contracts. And also, we can remember this too, Danny. He would have been going into the summer of 2018 where there was no money at all. There was no money at all. And it would have been hard for Richardson to get an offer sheet. Remember, he was also an older rookie at 22. He played a couple of years at at Tennessee. And so now he's going to have the option. It'll be his age 27 season will be his his next one. And then can either be be an unrestricted free agent at 27 
or at 28, I'm assuming, you know, it would be kind of shocking to me if he didn't decline that player option, but it's great to have it. I mean, this could have gone a lot worse for him over the last couple of years. So yeah, this is a strange one where it is, has become a team-friendly contract, but I still think it was totally justifiable, if not advantageous from Richardson's perspective. Yeah, I I would give it a B. Same. Rajon Rondo, previously, uh, he has been uh, itinerant over the last few AE, but then a one-year, $9 million with the Lakers in that terrible summer of 2018 after LeBron signed. That was a great deal. And then re-signing on a two-year deal with a player option, also able to block a trade, which I think uh, was huge. Uh, so I, I think he's, I mean, obviously we think that Rondo is way overrated and they shouldn't be getting yes, contracts. I'm happy you brought so, that up. Uh, now others don't necessarily think that way. The market may not think that way, but I mean, who else is going to play Rondo 9 million in the summer of 2018? I have no idea. So I think that's. Yeah. And, and the, the Pelicans weren't, and they were happy with him. <sighs> Yeah, I don't know that they, you know, they didn't like, have the cap space to do it either at that time. Yeah, that's true. Well, and, they, and, they could and have, also, they, they went with Julius Randle instead. Yes, which was a proper decision. And and also remember that Rondo got to be a part this year, more so than in, in 1920, more so than 1819, got to play with LeBron James, got to be on a relevant, ideally competitive team. They definitely are, of course, this season. Uh, and I think for a veteran, that's a nice place to be and, you know, gets to gets to have the stage again and all that. So I, I, think, I think they did well well by him and i for rondo even if let's say the market was more robust for him than it would be if you and i were general managers i don't think that he would have gotten that much more than the minimum and i don't think he would have gotten that much more than the minimum to be on a competitive team which it's very reasonable to expect that he would prefer yeah so i gave uh both of those last two contracts uh, an a minus omari spellman yeah, i think that's yeah sorry go ahead i think that's about fair overall I might go a little lower on this one just because it's at the minimum but i do love the player option because it no not it's not gives it's not the locked minimum, in. is it hold on oh it might be a little bit more let me see Maybe it is the minimum, but he also got the a ancient, one plus one. The ancient minimum is so high. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess he's over ten years experience. So yeah, I think it, I think it is the minimum actually. But yeah, I mean, to get that no trade with the player option, I mean, it's still a five million dollars guaranteed. So absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I will go a little bit lower since it's, it is the minimum. That's that's a good point. We'll go uh, we'll go a B plus there instead. Amari Spellman drafted thirtieth overall in twenty eighteen. Got traded to the Warriors, then got salary dumped to Minnesota. I mean, kind of got dumped, salary dumped to Golden State as well. I mean, this one is tough. I mean, and you know, you never know how much of it is is the client. In this case, I think probably quite a bit. But Spellman really struggled with weight issues and possibly depression in Atlanta. He got back into it in Golden State, which is coincidentally, Bill Duffy is located in the Bay Area and. You know, I think they're able to really help him resuscitate his NBA career. He hadn't really gotten any run in Minnesota yet for some reason, but I thought he actually played at an NBA level this year once he got into shape with Golden State, resuscitated his career. So, do you want to blame his agent some for him kind of falling out of it, or do you want to say that he worked with them to help get him back in? Um, him being drafted 30th, that seemed like kind of right in line. Uh, not a ton of data to go on here because it's only a rookie contract, but uh, after all that blabber. Uh, what would you say i think it's around to see i mean I, it seemed like a reasonable place for spellman to be picked and i throw a lot of what's happened on on the player i generally do i mean I, agents can be a can be a motivator they can help help things but it is a challenge 
Jared Vanderbilt basically didn't play at Kentucky, was a, a highly rated recruit, 41st overall, then was traded to Minnesota in this, his second year from Denver, hasn't had much run there uh, before the hiatus. Vanderbilt signed a three-year deal, essentially at the minimum, got, I think, a little bit more than that in the first year. And yeah, I, I believe he did because that was a part of the weirdness that Denver, remember, they burned their mid-level exception and yeah. then they ended up kind of using the wrong one. Right, right, yeah, yeah. They used the uh, the mini mid level before they got off of Farid and Chandler. Uh, and yeah, and he had about two point two million of that three point nine million guaranteed, uh, according to uh, Spotrack. And he's got another year going forward here that is non guaranteed, guaranteed date of July fifteenth. So for a guy who basically didn't play to get him two point two million guaranteed, I, I thought that's a pretty good work, uh, and especially because he hasn't really developed into much uh, and doesn't appear to be on that path necessarily, even though he does have some raw ability. So I, I think a solid uh, uh, C minus there is warranted, or I'm sorry, B minus there is warranted. Yeah, that's about where I'd put it. Finally, Miles Turner, he just actually came to BBA. He was with uh, uh, another agent, uh, Brian Jung- Younggrace, who I actually haven't heard of, but, uh, but Ben helped us put in some of this data. So incomplete so far for Miles Turner. And that, that'll do it for Bill Duffy. I think we'll save Kevin Bradbury for later. I think what, what sticks out to me on Duffy is nothing below a C. Like, that's pretty good. Very consistent, or, or BDA, I should say, because Namaki is it, and Marlon Harrison are involved as well. But uh, a pretty notable lack of screw-ups here, I would say. And and some contracts that I thought were well-negotiated in specific circumstances. So like the Josh Richardson deal was the richest that he could do at that time, would have gone into a very challenging, restricted free agent market. And getting the player option on the end, that's good. Betting on Kelly Oubre's talent, even though Oubre didn't like it, I think that is turning out very well for them. Getting Harkless paid in a tough spot. And even just this, you know some of the deals that you could think of as on the margins. Remember, part of this exercise for us is if you were advising a player on who you think would be a good agent the work that the work that bda did for stanley johnson for shake diallo getting those guys guaranteed money stanley johnson getting him that player option those were some of the better contracts relative to talent level that players signed last offseason yeah and i think it's also important to note that now i don't know what the pistons offered stanley johnson in, in an extension i'm guessing it probably wasn't much we didn't have any reports of a significant offer at that time that would be one where i mean if they offered him anything he blew it by not taking it at that point he ended up basically just getting dumped so that's one where maybe they took the risk and restricted free agency and it didn't work out um but we just don't know that and i a lot of times when organizations make these offers it does seem to come out um and uh, but i do think usually when they've taken the risk and going to restricted free agency and like mo harkless for example i'm sure he didn't have an offer from portland after getting acquired for the top 55 protected pick um and zach levine i think they did a really nice job there are talks with chicago when he still hadn't even played yet and i think they made the right decision in turning those down and then getting to the four years 78 million from that that was probably his best job that's why it gave him the a there and del vadova as well they made the bet in 2015 restricted free agency got him to 2016 got him paid so it seems like they have done a pretty good job of reading the market in those situations like we've seen with rich paul on occasion where uh in restricted free agency you can 
it, that's where you can really screw up the worst uh and yes so I, they've avoided doing that so very solid by duffy i mean he doesn't i, I mean i kind of like this profile as an agent i think if i were an agent this is uh, more what i do is just like hey we're dealing with so much money here don't screw around yeah maybe there's a slight possibility that you're going to get a deal that is going to look bad for you on paper and a guy's me quote unquote underpaid like josh richardson is quote unquote underpaid but i still think they made the right decision there um and so uh another thing to note too is that he was about to really cash in with nikola mirotic and darren collison this last offseason and then both of them just didn't go to the nba anymore like collison was supposed to get like a, a couple years like 10 million a year and mirotic i think he had he was the jazz the apple right, the jazz, yeah, I, I think it was like, like 55 million guaranteed from the jazz was the thought there so yeah it's uh the, he uh got burned by just you know some client decisions that i'm sure he wouldn't have made for him um so this is interesting news we don't have that much here but the biggest news actually is not nba news to me it comes from the world of baseball where they now have a plan in theory a lot a lot of hoops to jump through here but this is a very long reported piece by jeff Passon of espn they're going to try to start the season as early as may or june this has the support of high-ranking federal public health officials who believe the league can safely operate and so here's what they're going to try and do all 30 teams are going to play games at stadiums with no fans in the phoenix area there's 10 spring training facilities there there's the diamondbacks chase field so i mean you're going to have basically all these games going on every day in the phoenix area they are going to be sequestered players coaching staffs other essential personnel at local hotels they would live in relative isolation and travel only to and from the stadium uh and supposedly federal officials have been supportive of this but uh mlb did issue a statement saying that that plan has been discussed but they haven't settled that option they haven't developed a detailed plan yet and they are going to need a detailed plan because what are you gonna are are these people just gonna never see their families what about any sort of cleaning staff that is going to be in these hotels? How are you going to ensure that there's no issue there? And there's also a, a thought that they could see some players, if you potentially test positive, that you could continue the league. There's a They view MLB players as low-risk candidates for if they do get COVID-19 to... Uh, actually developed some real complications there are managers coaches umpires etc they're talking about instead of using the dugout having players sit in the stand six feet apart from one another i mean they're just the constant vigilance that would be required to make this work is I mean, it's going to take a lot obviously the nba i'm sure will be watching it's a little bit easier because they have a, a smaller group in the nba and are you going to say that well we're still even though we've tested all these guys uh, that's the other part too is that this plan is contingent on you know much greater testing capacity being available because nobody in sports wants to be taking away tests uh, from people who need it so uh, that's another contingency here well and ideally a turnaround time too because if it takes if it takes four to six days to get one back then that's a problem too yeah it seems like there are are tests that are going to be available that that move much more quickly than that uh there's an abbott labs one supposedly that can work within five minutes there's also something ben taylor and i talked about today on the COVID 19 pod about 
the issue of false negatives. He and I actually went into that in great detail today. So that that's another logistical hurdle. And I mean, players are going to need to really buy in as well. That's a, another hurdle. So I, now, I mean, there are a lot of people who are just saying, well, this is totally irresponsible. Like they shouldn't even be doing this. No, I think it's like you absolutely should at least be exploring it. Perhaps in the course of that exploration, you find out based on uh, the best advice of, of health officials and scientists or just going through the logistics yourself that the risk is too great. There's no way to do this with absolutely zero risk whatsoever. But uh, at some point, that risk would get low enough where it seems to be worth it. I tend to be a little bit more sensitive to that risk than maybe some others but there is still a point it is worth exploring maybe the result of that exploration is you can't do it but i i do applaud them at least making the effort uh i my thought is that this seems like it's probably not gonna work <laughs> uh, unless you re- uh, you really find out much more about what their plans are and it's just to even be like all right, we're not going to celebrate. Are we going to talk to each other? You're not allowed to yell because you're spreading too many virus particles because you're yelling. I mean, there's all just, as you really go through it, it's so difficult to come up with this. I mean, the biggest thing to me that's an obstacle, and again, this is baseball, but you might as well just transfer all this over to basketball, is what happens if you get a positive test from someone in the organization? Are you going to say, all right, that's it. Let's stop. We're anyone who ever may have had contact with this person. They're now into quarantine. We can't play any games at all. Are are you going to say, well, we're going to continue and some people who are close to this person will be quarantined. Only that person is going to be quarantined. There's legal liability issues, I'm sure, with this as well. That would have to be sorted out. You know, probably some waivers would have to be signed by the players. They may not be willing to do that. It is just a complete quagmire, but uh, they're they're going to try and work through it, and I, I wish them luck. Other than that, a bit more in Chicago. Bobby Webster, it's reported he's not going to interview either. He's going to remain in Toronto. Adam Simon, also not a candidate now as well. They are, I think, uh, going to be interviewing uh, Arturis Karnishevis from the Nuggets, who's their general manager working under Tim Conley. So a little bit concerning here that the Bulls had this list of candidates that's leaked and then how many of them have like not even wanted to interview. Maybe they weren't actually ever candidates. Maybe that's coming from the Bulls side. Maybe they just agreed, hey, we're going to interview you and then just say, hey, you decided to withdraw just to protect you, whatever it is. Uh, But it seems more likely to me that the strictures that they are putting on this potential new hire in terms of uh having all these same people in the organization etc that and inability to make the changes that they want to lack of autonomy is limiting the type of candidates they can get that would be my best guess at this point um what about this news uh for involving tillman for yeah i mean it, it looks like um and th- there had been some reporting on this before that he is basically trying to trying to get some more liquidity and offering a uh, what i believe the number that i heard is a 15 percent loan through his overall properties now this relates to the it relates yeah, f- to the rocket 15 interest rate right interest yes yeah 15 percent interest and i mean it seems like he's trying to get some liquidity it's it seems like it's more about his businesses than about the rockets but it is another reminder of how how complicated these times are and how the individuals that run teams also have a lot of other varied interests that can be challenging for them yeah it's going to be a new 250 million dollar loan i'm sure his hope would be that at some point when things stabilize and they reopen that it'd be possible to refinance that uh, at a better rate they already have drawn 300 million of their existing credit lines in full and Fertitta is injecting 50 million of his own cash into the business and that of course uh, is going to have repercussions for the rockets 
the Bloomberg article said that the loan is similar to a junk bond. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that much about the bond market, but you don't you don't want to hear that phrasing necessarily. Um, and now one thing that's worth noting here is that two months ago, Fertitta took a $200 million dividend out of the company. And so he had some cash laying around to put in that $50 million back. I will, that will do it for us today. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. I haven't decided on our topic yet. We talked about Anthony Edwards, scouting report of him yesterday and our COVID-19 podcast now has its own feed, but uh, stay tuned for that. You can listen here as well. That is uh, up on iTunes. We might actually change the name of it to make it a little bit more searchable. But if you search for Nate Duncan coronavirus, hopefully it won't say that I have it. (laughs) But uh, it should uh, bring that up in iTunes now. So please give us a rating and review on that. Do you have anything you want to talk about before we depart? Yeah, uh, the piece I I mentioned that it was a possibility yesterday, but it's now actually coming out on Wednesday. Uh, The Athletic dot com slash cap space my 2020 free agency preview i've done the point guards and, and the big men before i the wings there were so many i split into two so this is all the wings that i expect to get more than the mid-level exception either through resigning or through theoretically cap space so talked about you know brandon ingram fournier's player option decision a couple other guys so i, th- I thought it was it was fun to go in a little bit more depth and think about where things might be going yeah that's of course something we'll be talking about plenty in the coming days Okay, Ben is back today to save me from just having to talk to myself for for 30 minutes here. And the big thing that we wanted to talk about is is something that is going to be an issue as we talk about our way of getting back to reopening some semblance of normalcy, but before a vaccine is available. And that is the issue of the reliability of testing. And Ben, you kind of led the way here on some of this research. Um, What are some of the stats on when we're getting these false negative or false positive issues with the current testing? So I think the the high level takeaway, the humbling answer is because things are happening so fast, we really don't know. We don't have a great, like typically you'd want to research this in a formal setting, in a lab, it would take a lot of time. And then you could say, hey, we have a really good idea of how many false positives and false negatives we had. You know, I'm sure most of the audience is familiar with this. False positive is when you test positive, but you don't actually have the disease. And a false negative is when you test negative, but you do have the disease. So there are different forms of the test missing, if you will. So for positives, it's less of an issue right now with COVID-19. The bigger thing that's coming up is the rate of negatives or the, the testing accuracy of when you actually have it, but you test negative. And and so accuracy on negatives to quote one uh, professor and former CDC statistician, Tom Taylor, he estimates they're around 70%. Um, a lot of people are saying, you know, this sort of 60 to 70%, two thirds figure. And so we'll talk about that, you know, in a second about what that means. But uh, I think that's the high level takeaway as of right now. We, we kind of have a moving target. We don't know. The experts are saying we don't know. But the larger issue that's looming is the idea of false negatives yeah obviously there are massive concerns if you tell someone hey you don't have the virus and now you're okay to get back out there now they're still telling people that don't do that right even if you if you have symptoms even if you get a negative you should still isolate for 14 days especially if you have symptoms but as we're talking about really everyone re-entering society this looks like it, it could be a major issue and part of the problem is 
okay, when you're in a lab and you're testing this, you, you get, you know that you have gotten viral particles on the swab. You go ahead, you test it. Most of these tests, at least that I've read about, have you know, over a 90% accuracy as far as uh, detecting the disease and not giving you a false negative but then what happens when you get out in the real world and because the fda is certifying these tests on a provisional basis because they work in the lab they don't have time to actually test them in the real world under the circumstances that these tests are being administered whether it's a drive-through hospital wherever it is it seems like a lot of the issue is the swab isn't being administered correctly you're not getting the virus onto the swab and then in that case you're not going to detect the virus so I think it's worth taking a minute to sort of unpack the process for people. When you say a swab, here, here's what's happening. First of all, I think it's kind of incredible that we almost take for granted that there there's this idea that there's like a test and you just go get the test and it tells you with certainty whether you have the virus or not. It's not that magical. Um, what essentially is happening is the virus hangs out in different parts of your body. In this case, it hangs out uh, in this nasopharynx area uh which sort of sits behind like your mouth and your nose. And so you have to, you have to get a sample. You have to like stick a swab way up there. It's very uncomfortable. And so your first point of failure in instances when you actually have the virus, but you're trying to detect it is how good is that sample? Can you get a swab back there that actually gets tissue? And then the way we test for it is you send it to a lab and you're essentially looking for the genetic footprint of the virus. And this also, I think, intuitively explains why when you've got a positive test, the likelihood is actually really high that you are positive, but you can have it and it can be sitting in your body uh, and you can miss it. Another thing is if you're asymptomatic or you don't have many symptoms, um, maybe there isn't that much virus inside you, like lower loads, if you will. These are things that could contribute to actually having the, the virus itself, but testing negative and, and producing one of these false negatives. It was described by one person receiving the test as feeling like you are being poked in your brain. Yeah. And you just consider in the real world what's going on here, right? You're, you have someone administering this test. They are trying to get as many of these swabs as quickly as possible. Everyone knows, hey, our testing capacity isn't high enough. We got to get as many of these as we can. And your first instinct when you get something shoved that far up your nose is you're just going to move backwards, right? Like it's just, it's a natural reaction. And so sometimes they just don't get far enough. Up. There's no way to know exactly how far you can go. There's a lot of like curvature in the nasal passages. It's, it's and, not, it's not comfortable. No. And, and so for the person administering the test, if you're doing this hundreds of times a day in particular, it's just anything that you're doing a hundred times a day. It's hard to be perfect on it. Yeah. And so if you're thinking, you know, is there a way to improve this or, or prevent against these false negatives? I don't, I haven't seen any literature, maybe some experts on different ways to test uh, would know, but just in general, we, you know, these real world things, the, the way you have to take the swab, the fact that it's uncomfortable, the speed at which you're moving with, um, you know, potentially contaminating or losing a sample in transit, you know, it's got to go someplace and get processed. Although now in theory, they have uh, processing sites right there with new tests. But 
Like these are all things that are going to make this an issue. And I think, Nate, to your point, the reason why we really wanted to bring this up is that if you have symptoms, and this is what all the experts we could find all said across the board, if you have symptoms, but you end up with a negative test, you should still act like you have the virus. One of one of the reasons we know that these false negatives are prevalent, one of the reasons we know um, or that people estimate they're 60, 70% is because that's anecdotal reports coming from the field where someone will come in, they will test negative, they will have symptoms, and then they will get worse. And sometimes later on test positive. And of course, there have been uh, fatalities credited to COVID-19 where people have originally tested negative and then gone on to uh, test positive uh, and pass away from the disease. So if you have symptoms and you test negative, the sort of uh, operating procedure is to continue going forward as if you do have the disease, you should quarantine and take all those necessary measures. Yeah. And this false negative issue is part of why uh, Dr. Fochi said that the standard ultimately should be if you're going to show that you're recovered from the virus, that you need two negative tests at 24 hours apart, in part because you the test may not be picking up uh, exactly what your status is. And especially when you're at the point where your body is reducing but not eliminating the virus. Um, what was that Chinese study you, you mentioned where in the early days of the virus, they either didn't have enough testing or they found the testing wasn't sensitive enough. So they compared their testing with x-rays or ct stands of people who had symptoms which they felt was a especially when people just clearly had it due to their symptoms what was the comparison in terms of the percentage of false negatives between those two methods yeah, that was an early day kind of test um, or study that came out of some of the earlier research in China. And just to put a number on it, although again, small samples, and I'm not sure how much people are looking to chest x-rays or even if that's a, a viable option. But what they did is they said, look, if we look at these patients we have in front of us that have symptoms and we look at an x-ray, um, in about 88% of the patients, they were able to diagnose using the sort of standard footprint that's left on the x-ray, you know, issues with little spots in the lungs or whatever yeah. it is, right? And, and to be clear, I think this is people who already were bad enough right. that they're admitted to the hospital. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So they know all these people are symptomatic. Um, and that was 88% through chest x-ray and 59% through um, the sort of standard method where you're swabbing and looking for a genetic footprint. Um yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. The reverse transcription polymerase chain reaction is what RT-PCR is what that test is called. That's one of the yeah, tests that's it's available. A really, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's a really it's a really fancy way of, uh, of, I think, a pretty common practice of just trying to find uh, genetic material of the, the virus. Yeah. And again, in a lab setting, these are very sensitive tests. Even if you only get a few strands of the viral RNA, apparently it can detect it. But Sometimes you're you're just not going to get that. And so this test is the only test that's available in the early stages of the disease in particular to find out whether people have the disease or not. We talked about last week that United Health had come up with this 
tests that you could self-administer lower in the nasal cavity that would have nearly as high of a detection rate but i, I haven't seen anything else about that becoming widespread i look for it today uh so but may, maybe if they can develop that you would have a lower chance of just a incorrect administration of the test no test is going to be perfect yeah but i think it, when you get to a test that can actually you know look at blood or even the, there's a test underdeveloped probably months from now uh that can look at saliva but actually get the antibodies where you're you're getting it out of the blood which is a lot easier than having to find a specific spot in the body where there is virus and physically grab the virus out of there then you're better off but the limitation of an antibody test is your body doesn't really start producing those until about seven days in so in the early stages of the virus when you don't know whether you have it or not uh, those tests aren't really going to be of any use yeah we've discussed this before you'll you'll start producing antibodies after a few days but you won't really be able to detect or typically you know you want to give it a little time a week or two whatever it is uh, to actually have a large enough amount uh, antibody of antibodies in the blood to detect them and in that case nate the the interesting thing about this conversation is there's a flip side right there's a false positive side where when we're trying to open things back up and we're doing antibody tests then instead of worrying about the false negative we're worried about the false positive which in this case becomes you test positive for antibodies and you see that oh my antibody you know the test that's administered is 95 percent uh sensitive or whatever the term is and then you actually actually have to figure out, well, when I get a positive test, what are my odds of having the virus? And without going through the, the grisly math, it turns out that the odds aren't super high um, when, you know, a small percentage of the population is infected. Well, I, I think this is something that I, it took me a second to understand. So basically what we're talking about here is it depends on the overall incidence of yes. the virus in the population, right? So let's yes. say 5% of the people in the U.S. have had the virus and you test everyone in the U.S. Well, now your false positives, and that's important because, right, if you, let's say you're positive for the antibodies, if we if it's established scientifically that if you've had the virus, uh, some level of immunity is conferred and you can, uh, with precautions, uh, start going about your business again. Well, that's a big problem if they're saying that you did have it when you didn't because now you're, you're at risk still uh, of getting infected. So let's say you're going to test 300 million people and 5% of people have had the virus, but then you also have 5% false positive rate. Yep. You're essentially going to have just as many people who are testing false positive, thinking that they've had it and that they're good to go as people who actually did have the virus and are going to be immune. So that that is a big issue depending on how widespread the virus becomes. It's much less of an issue if you're in a population where you've got a lot of people who you have reason to think would have the virus, like right, say right, right. healthcare workers, people who had symptoms at one point or another, but never had a positive test, any kind of a, a high risk population, then it's less of an issue because you're, you know, maybe the overall instance of people who have it in that population is 70% or something. And then the number of people who are getting true positives versus false positives is much greater. So we'll point you to Dr. Zachary Binney, who also had a great uh, guest appearance on the, uh, back-to-back -back podcast um, but he basically if you go to his Twitter he lays out the actual math if you're interested in it but just to take the example that Nate just laid out 
if you have one of these tests trying to identify antibodies and it's 95% specific, 95% sensitive, so it's about you know, 1 in 25% false positive, false negatives, and your prevalence of disease only infected 5% of those people that you're testing, you would actually have a 50% chance of actually having the antibodies when you tested positive for the antibodies. But in that incidence where it was widespread, what'd you say, 70%? Yes. So 70% if you tested positive, just to put this in perspective, with those same levels of specificity and sensitivity would give you a 98% likelihood of actually having the antibodies when you test positive for the antibodies. Okay, so these two problems that we talked about, the false negative and the false positive sensitivity for the false negative specificity is the false positive how do we fix it It, when we're talking about using these tests to get back to a functioning society what can we put in in terms of procedures to fix it so these tests can still be useful in determining who does and doesn't have the virus to a point where it's reliable and people can feel like they can go back into society and you don't have 30 percent of the people walking around with the virus because they got a false negative not realizing it can i invoke the scientific answer of i don't know i mean well i think that's i I think that's the million dollar question right like i mean i think there's some things you can do to mitigate it if not eliminate i mean one of it is do a lot more testing i mean just uh, we've talked about the need for this all the time and it, it might not even be enough to give everybody in the u.s one test maybe they need more than that maybe you need to take three different tests you know take one every week uh and that at least is going to start reducing your chances uh, you might even have people take two different tests that work a, a little bit differently as well. You you can do uh, some triangulation, maybe some triangulation yeah, there. Yeah. 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 So, so in case just there's something about that person or something about that test that's wrong, you're hoping to avoid that issue. I mean, I think the issue of false positive is a little less concerning to me because I think that then you can, if you're talking about, okay, you got a, a false positive, you're talking about going back into society, you can just put more safeguards in where, hey, all right, now you, you need more than one positive test to, to go back in and, and considering the error rate on those being a lot lower than on the false negatives you know if you take two or three tests and again this is all just hypothetical for that i'm i'm brainstorming here so keep in mind this is just trying to come up with a way to to fix this this isn't vetted by scientists this is just me talking at this point uh but i think if you you know two or three tests when you have a over 90 percent accuracy rate on the tests and you're also talking about an antibody test where you're using blood and st- and so you don't have as many issues with the collection process necessarily as you would with these nasal swabs that i i think w- would be go a long way towards reducing some of the issues with the false positive okay so when i say i don't know um i just mean i don't know what the perfect solution is but oh obviously right, yeah i mean so I, i'm just trying to come up with the, with some ideas here sh- sure but yeah. i i think um you know caring for that same thought process going forward hopefully we have more information in three months and six months number one number two um we the 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 takeaway here is if you have less information like we do right now you want to proceed with more caution regardless of which side of the coin you're on so the original example we gave where if you're having these false negatives and you're not sure if you have the virus but you have symptoms act like you have the virus these are these are precautions we can take going forward it might turn out that we get much tighter numbers on um, let's say you had symptoms let's say you tested positive 
looking for the genetic footprint with the swab, the uh, RT-PCR test that we talked about. And then let's say later on, you know, you want to cross your T's and dot your I's and you get an antibody test. Those three things together probably have a, a very different a sort of mathematical outcome in terms of your odds of having this versus just a singular naive piece of information. A lot of these calculations you'll see are naive in the sense that they don't include other pieces of information. But when you know you have other symptoms or other tests that have come in positive, you can use that information. So I, I'm, I'm when I say I don't know, it's not to be uh, negative or say, boy, we're stuck. It's more to say, as we really need more information, sure. and then when we get more information, we'll be able to proceed. But we want to keep these things in mind as we go forward, especially when we're in a more ignorant sort of phase as we are right now. Uh, this way we can protect ourselves against these kinds of false positive, false negative unknowns. One thing that worries me about the false positive is that it's a very seductive narrative. I mean, we've seen this. We talked about that Oxford study last week, this idea of, hey, what if 50% of people have it right now? And just there's your have all these asymptomatic people and we're going to get to herd immunity. And I mean, because that's seductive, right? You would love it if, oh, hey, I had this thing. I never even knew it. It wasn't that bad. And now I'm immune. I mean, that's, that's great, right? Like you would, everyone would love for that to be the case for them uh, where... Are, are, yeah, yeah, I didn't have any symptoms, but now I like, hey, I, I actually did have it. I'm good now. Like, I don't have to worry. And I didn't have any symptoms. That's great. Are you but, saying you've gone through the dance of having a few coughs and going, I hope I hope this is it. I hope I've got my antibodies. <laughs> I, I mean, I think I, I think a lot of people. Have right, right. That, exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, and, and so then to also go in and have the false positive to have it on just one test and have it play into that narrative. I, I think yeah. there is some danger there to be sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something we need to uh, keep in our heads as that as we move into that phase of this situation where hopefully sooner rather than later, uh, we're trying to identify people with antibodies and using that as a way to kind of get back to normalcy. Um, that's This is definitely something we want to keep in mind. I, I agree. And as we're talking about people just getting back to work, I mean, I think, as you mentioned, I thought your notion that it's a combination of things that you can look at, antibody, maybe you got the swab when you actually were infected, you had symptoms. Okay, if you hit all three of those, you can probably feel pretty good about having cleared the virus and having whatever immunity science believes at that point that uh, having had the virus and cleared it confers. And then you also throw in that the testing is just, you know, one way of preventing the spread of the disease. If we're going to have mass, if we're going to continue avoiding large gatherings, way more hand washing, staying six feet apart when possible, uh, all of that stuff is going to mitigate as well. So I think uh, there's at least hope that this won't just like completely sink us as we're trying to get back to work and reopen in some sort of a reasonable way. But we don't really know the answer to that. You know, I mean, it's going to take some halting attempts here to see as we reopen in stages what is the, the way that we can actually get back to work in a safe manner yeah and uh larry kudlow was uh, speaking recently or maybe this week uh, when was that yeah it was, it was in the last couple of days yeah last couple of days thank you my the, the, all the dates blur together at this point for me um but he was you know alluding to the possibility of quote-unquote reopening the economy in four to eight weeks um you know i don't know if that's optimistic or how realistic that is i don't think it's a wild timeline if you think about sort of starting to relax measures but to your point you know relaxing measures is going to entail that we don't just jump back into the pool we kind of you know we 
dip our toe in, we put our goggles on, we put our, if we need our floaties, we get our floaties, and we abide by pool rules. Yeah, Kudlow, by the way, is a White House economic advisor, the director of the United States National Economic Council, uh, had an interview with uh, Politico, I think it was yesterday. And some of the other interesting quotes from that, uh, he says that things are going to be different. It's going to be a new feature of American life. And his belief is that there's going to be widespread and ongoing testing, routine temperature taking. Again, that could be another part of, of this multi-pronged regime to ensure the safety at least at some level of a return to normal life uh, and the thought that he had that you can we can reopen the economy in the next four to eight weeks i hope he's right about that um i still haven't seen like a great plan for that i mean the fact that he's at least alluding to the idea that there's going to be this widespread testing and monitoring i i think is good I haven't seen any specifics for that at least in the u.s yet but that might be a little optimistic i hope he's right about that four to eight weeks uh, as far as uh at least a gradual reopening at that time i mean we don't have to get into it now but uh, when i hear stuff like that an interesting question for me is what would be the first things that are reopened what if if we're only on essentials what comes after essentials what does that procedure or protocol look like yeah that's something that we should probably talk about it at some point soon here um all right is, are we good on the uh the false positive false negative stuff for right now yeah i think it's news time okay what do you want to start with probably uh boris john the latest on boris johnson right yeah that's a good idea with so many things happening in real time um so boris is in the icu i think you had that in yesterday's episode right he had just gone to the icu um nothing so far today about him being put on a ventilator the reports are he's still in good spirits so uh i i guess from that perspective still looking a little bit more positive relative to most people who proceed to the icu yeah the quote from a, a spokesman he has been stable overnight and remains in good condition the succession plan in britain it's not as well defined say as here in the u.s uh, the he had been deputizing stuff to the foreign secretary dominic robb where necessary and if he were to be incapacitated the finance minister rishi sunak would take on those responsibilities but there is a question for example of who would be in control of britain's nuclear weapons not that there's a need to use those right now but that's that's one of the big things that you look at uh, when a, a leader is incapacitated uh, as far as who has ultimate authority and so it does seem like it's not entirely clear what would happen there isn't a vice president in the uh, british system per se i don't know uh, that much about it. i'm just basing that uh, on reading news reports um in italy with the curve in theory having been flattened they're continuing to have cases uh, and deaths about the same level it hasn't started really reducing but 150 italian academics published a letter in an Italian financial daily, which is owned by an Italian business lobby, coincidentally, urging the government to uh, open up the economy. And a familiar refrain as they said that the social and economic consequences would be more serious than those caused by the virus itself. Uh, in contrast, the WHO urged countries not to lift restrictions prematurely. And also in contrast, trade unions in Italy have threatened to strike unless the government keeps non-core activities down. And what is the government doing about all this? They've said that work restrictions would probably be lifted on a sector by sector rather than a geographical basis. Be interesting to see again, as they are ahead of us here in theory, which of those sectors they choose to open first. And they'll continue with social distancing, PPE, 
strengthening local help systems. They're also going to try and do testing, contact tracing, South Korean style apps. Again, something we haven't heard about a specific overall government issue. There's been a lot of private people here in the U.S. coming up with these apps, but clearly you would need to have some sort of something be centralized. And do we have any update on Italy's capacity for contact tracing? I mean, for instance, uh, Germany today, there was an announcement that they have an app that they are going to potentially use much like South Korea did. A- any any update on that at all, Nate? Uh, not that I've seen it. This, okay. this just vaguely alluded to the idea that they're going to be trying to do that. Uh, we talked last week about the situation in Sweden, which has been one of the few countries in Europe to not impose any kind of a lockdown. What's the latest there? Yeah, so kind of the opposite of the uh, you know extreme Italian situation that they're trying to move out of. In Sweden, as we've mentioned, they have never really put in a lockdown. The government is more just asking people to do their part, to use common sense. They have had things like a ban of 50 plus people uh, in terms of size of gatherings. They've had that um, sort of in place for a little while, but businesses are still open. Restaurants are still open. They're just asking people to keep their distance or use common sense about packing in dense dense areas and things like that. Uh, but with all that said, this is uh, according to The Guardian, um, they've reported that Parliament there has been drawing up legislation in the last few days to put in tighter lockdown measures, what uh, you know will appear to be extreme for Sweden that many of the other countries around the world and even in Europe, not too far away, have put into place. And just an update in terms of where they're at, why they might finally be crying uncle a little bit on this particular approach being so loose. They had 76 deaths yesterday. That was a a peak day for them. And then today, as of recording this, uh, because their time zone is ahead of us, they had 114 deaths. No idea if that'll be the final number, but that brings their death count up to 591. And this is the kind of similar exponential growth as a signal that we've seen that really leads to some cascading um, sort of problematic situations with healthcare. To put it in perspective, how long they've been going in this um, sort of more laissez-faire approach, their death rate per capita, per, per person in the country is the ninth highest officially among the major countries and their neighbor, Norway, uh, who has you know not been following this playbook of being very loose with going out in public, um, their death rate is about four times lower than Sweden's. So something to keep an eye on whether they will actually put in further measures and finally move to a lockdown. Japan is another country that resisted locking down. A state of emergency has now been declared there. Tokyo appears to be running out of hospital beds. It, it was unclear exactly because Japan hadn't been doing the, the type of contact tracing that South Korea had. They had closed schools, but a lot of daily life seemed like it was continuing. But now, unfortunately, it appears that things are starting to ramp up in Japan as well. We'll we'll follow that more closely. But it's uh, Japan, Sweden, it does seem like these countries that have resisted lockdowns without the type of contact tracing that we've seen in Taiwan and South Korea, Singapore, which even they have have had to lock down now for about a month or so, that a lot of times it's kind of seemed too good to be true. And I've been rooting for them, their approaches to work. 
but it doesn't seem like they have, unfortunately. Saudi Arabia also is going to be locking down more cities. They added nine cities to their list of those on 24-hour lockdown, including Riyadh, uh, their capital, uh, Mecca and Medina. It also faced restrictions. We talked about that last week. And Israel, right, has now made mass com- compulsory as well. Yeah, if you're going out in public, Israel had closed their borders quite a bit ago. They've got a lot of restrictions there. Let's turn to the U.S. as we finish up now. Bill Gates, who I I have been very impressed by his approach and leadership, he is going to be starting essentially seven different factories to potentially ramp up production of a vaccine, knowing that some of those are just going to be dead ends. Uh, His quote was, we're going to fund factories for all seven, even though we'll end up picking at most two of them, just so we don't waste time and serially saying which vaccine works and then building the factory. Now, hopefully they end up with a vaccine that does actually work. Uh, so, but Gates acknowledges that billions of dollars are going to be wasted on these vaccines that, that aren't going to pan out. Yeah, and and this is just the power of parallel processing. Instead of doing it sequentially, he is doing it at the same time, knowing that only one of those seven needs to hit. Uh, And we can talk about more virus details in a later episode, but my understanding from what the experts are saying is they're optimistic that they will get a hit. It's just a matter of time and making sure it's safe and all the other procedures that come with that. And so in the interest of time, Gates doing this in parallel, so things are ready and good to go at the earliest possible moment. Yeah, I shouldn't say that it's going to be wasted because this is what's exploring seven of these avenues is what right. enables you to find one or two and have the production ready immediately. You you can't get that otherwise. So, so wasted is probably the, the wrong term there. Um, it's an, R, it's an R&D yeah. cost. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the continued stress testing of our supply chains is something that I've been focused on a lot because that's uh, what could really cause some shortages, cause things to take a turn for the worst within our current isolated state right now. This one, uh, U.S. ethanol plants have closed, so meat packers are facing a shortage of CO2 for refrigerating. Purdue Farm says that they have enough CO2 for now and they have backup plans. The North American Meat Institute is trying to help connect carbon dioxide suppliers with companies that anticipate possible problems. Uh, Veronica Nye, a Farm Bureau economist, uh, said that some meat companies are already paying more for CO2, which of course would end up being reflected in the price uh, of meat. Another story that uh, I noted is that there could be a shortage of merchant seamen, where an 80% of the world's cargo travels by ship. So the issue is that they can't transfer onto and off of ships at a lot of ports where they face restrictions. They have also restrictions in how long they can be on ships legally before they have to basically get off and take a break for their own health. Uh, is that now, Yeah. Is that because they're getting sick or is that because the restrictions in place are limiting the number of people that can work? No, well, those restrictions are just a a general restriction. You know, same thing as like you can only drive a truck for so many hours before you have to take a break, like that kind of thing. Right, right. Um, Okay. But, and 
a lot of these articles don't have a ton of specificity you know if it's just they could just have quotes from four people saying yeah you know this is a concern in our industry what is it it's difficult to tell the degree from a lot of these reports of is it that or is it hey our industry is going to grind to a halt next week because we don't have enough supply you know there's it's tough to see where on that gradation a lot of these situations with supply chains fall and obviously people are going to try to figure out a way around these and and could fix them but i'm with this hidden opaque world as you've called it before of supply chains it's always worth thinking about and there's not much that we can do sitting at home to fix it, but it's, uh, I'm telling you this so you can worry about it, I guess. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, no, there's, there's, there's smoke, right? I mean, the idea yeah, here is yeah. there's smoke. And, um, when we first diagnosed this and I think I referred to these things as opaque, it's, it's difficult to actually figure out if there's a crack in the chain or how far down something goes. So we're, we're trying to bring those to your attention. But, um, when we ask each other questions like that, sometimes we just won't know. And hopefully there's no fire where there's smoke and sometimes we'll dig deeper and we'll find out um, that there's something where we actually need to make a concerted effort either within that industry at large or across industries to kind of adapt and change our response so we don't have a crack in a supply chain that really you know hurts us in some critical healthy way uh, while we're just sitting at home and trying to ride this out well and also there's this idea of what is an essential business can you change the rules like this uh, with merchant seamen is it worth doing that in the exigencies of this situation those are all all the questions that are gonna have to be asked uh the uh, larry kudlow's interview also provided this stat that of the $349 billion authorized for loans to small businesses, $50 billion and 178,000 loans uh, have already been authorized under the program. However, uh, many banks have yet to distribute these authorized funds. Apparently, there is a critical form from the SBA that borrowers have to sign uh, before those funds can be dispersed. Also reports that many of these small businesses don't already work with lenders who are authorized under this program and so obviously banks who are doing this are prioritizing their existing customers they already have the infrastructure and the relationship in place with them so those businesses that don't already have that relationship are kind of being forced to get in line and there's been a a lot of changing guidelines within this program seemingly daily updates on how it's going to be administered and that's it's tough we talked about just the incredible amount of work it takes to come up with this legislation and then come up with all uh, the rules that, that are going to apply and how much can be used for payroll how much can be used for fixed expenses uh, all this stuff i mean we're, people are kind of just flying by the seat of their pants uh, on this one but it seems like they're doing the best they can to get this stuff out in a reasonable way last piece of u.s news for me that i really wanted to highlight we've talked about it before the the risk of healthcare workers on the front lines a report coming out that in detroit at the henry ford health system they've confirmed 731 cases of coronavirus among their employees um, some of that is just because the hospital system is so large they have 31,000 employees but it's already two percent infected and in theory these are people who should be or could be uh, wearing personal protective equipment and the kind of people who um, you would hope would get infected at a lower rate than the general population of course they're around it all the time and thus the rising numbers that you see there all right i think we can pack it in for today thanks so much for listening i'll be back tomorrow with a solo pod we do this 
five days a week, Sunday through Thursday, usually in the afternoons. Uh, we're on our own feed now. Uh, it should be up on iTunes very shortly, Spotify, uh, all, of, all of your usual podcast players. You can keep listening on Dunked On for at least another couple of days until all those are, are up and running. So we appreciate it, your listenership and your support of this program. Patreon.com slash Duncan LaRue is a great way to support it. Uh, if you are so inclined, I am paying Ben to be on that. He is rolling in cash right now uh, as a result <laughs> it's just of this. A, it's so, a straight uh, money play for me. So I, I, am, I am crying poor. No, it's, it's not. It's not some enormous <laughs> amount, but uh I do. I do believe in compensating people for their time, at, at least. So, um, well, another another way, uh, if you enjoy this and you want to spread the word, um, is to you know, if you if you actually see it in the store, the place you're listening, leave a review, rate it, all, yes. all that stuff helps quite a bit. Absolutely, tell your friends. I mean, that's probably the biggest thing uh, as well, because this is uh, it's our first foray outside of sports. But uh, hopefully, you'll agree we're doing a good service. I'm not really aware of anyone else who is doing something like this where we're spending hours researching because we are uh, unlucky enough to have the time to do that right now which uh, some people don't so thanks again for listening and we'll talk to you all tomorrow at bet365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every goal every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period whatever the sport whatever the moment it's never ordinary at bet365 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.